The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now here the apostle is uh, beginning a new argument. The theme, of course, is still the same, the importance of right and true and appropriate living on the part of Christian people. That's the theme which he began at verse 17 in chapter 4. He is now applying his great doctrine and trying to get these people to see how it follows inevitably if they do indeed uh, grasp and understand the teaching that their mode of conduct and of behavior shall be entirely different from what it was before. Now here I say he takes up yet another argument to prove this and to demonstrate this. And as we come to look at this new argument, it surely must strike us at once that this is the New Testament method of sanctification and of promoting holiness. Here I say we have yet another argument. We've already been considering an argument, indeed a whole series of arguments. But the apostle is not content with that. He brings out yet another argument, and he will have yet further arguments to bring forward. Now I'm pausing with this just for a moment. In order, I say, to emphasize this thing which is so frequently forgotten and indeed denied, that this is the New Testament way of teaching and of promoting sanctification and holiness. Sanctification, in other words, is clearly not something which you receive as an experience. You can't take sanctification by one act. It is something which results from an outworking of the truth. So he presents it in the form of an argument. He states the doctrine. Then he says, now in the light of that, surely. He says, you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of the light, or as those who belong to the light. Now, is it not extraordinary that in spite of this constantly repeated teaching of these New Testament epistles, which were specially written in order to deal with the whole question of sanctification and a holy walk, is it not extraordinary, I say, that in spite of all this, that people still go on teaching sanctification as a gift to be received, something which you have as an experience, something which you take. Or there is another teaching which is equally popular which puts it like this. 
which would have us believe that all that is necessary to be sanctified and to be holy, and uh, I say all that is necessary because they always emphasize how simple it is, just like letting the blinds up and letting the light in or the sun to shine, they say all that is necessary is for the believer to look to the Lord. He's got nothing to do. There's no problem, there's no struggle, there's no difficulty. He just looks to the Lord and the Lord does it for him. And that, we are told, is the whole of the teaching of sanctification. The people have always made such a fuss and bother about this, and yet it's quite simple. You just look to the Lord, and then he will do it for you. He'll be victorious in you, and so on. Well, all I ask is this, if those teachings are true, why were these epistles ever written? And especially in these practical sections, why does the apostle take the trouble to produce argument after argument? He puts it in this form, then he puts it in another. Surely, it is time that we begin to consider these things again. And to see that this is the New Testament method of sanctification and of holiness. It is to realize the truth and then to apply it. Of course, our Lord himself had said the whole thing before his death. He had said, the truth shall make you free. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He prayed at the end, you'll find it in John's Gospel, chapter 17, sanctify them, he says, through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, that's exactly what the apostle is doing here. Here is this word of truth. And we are to apply it as the truth comes to us and we see it and understand it. We then must go on to apply it. So he plies us with argument upon argument, building up his case. Now then, we've been dealing for a number of Sunday mornings with an argument which was this. Walk in love. That was the matter that's been occupying us from verse 1 right away through to verse 6. Walk in love. And he gave us reasons for doing this. He says, you are saints. And therefore this walk in love is the only walk that becometh saints. Not only that, he says that we are citizens of a new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and of God. And therefore, as citizens of such a kingdom, we must walk according to the fashion and the manner of that kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and of God. We must walk as Christ walked. You see, it's all along an argument. And then he put it negatively to us in this way, that if we don't walk like this according to love and according to the manner and method of the kingdom, but continue to walk as we were walking before, well then we must remember that the wrath of God comes upon all such people, such children of disobedience. So you see, he has given us positive arguments, he's given us negative arguments. And you would have thought that that was enough. No, it isn't enough. He produces now, in these verses that we're going to look at, yet another argument. And now it is, walk in the light. Walk in love before, walk in light now. And this is the matter that occupies uh, verses 
7 right away through to verse 14. This is the whole matter here in this entire section. You notice how he puts it. He says the fruit of light, as we shall see, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. All things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now then, we've got to look at this fresh argument. And its essence, of course, is this. That uh, we who are Christians are children of the light. And that is contrasted with those who are still children of darkness and belong to the whole realm of darkness. Now, as we approach this new section, we must uh, remind ourselves that this is a very common and a very frequent way in the New Testament of dealing with this whole matter. It obviously, therefore, is a very powerful argument. The difference between being Christian and non-Christian is the difference between being in the light and being in the dark. Now, let us consider very hurriedly some of the terms which remind us of this. Take our Lord's own term. He said, I am the light of the world. Or again, he says, I am come a light in the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. But he also said this, addressing his own followers in the Sermon on the Mount. Having spoken the Beatitudes, he says, You are the light of the world. We also because of our relationship to him, become the light of the world. No man putteth a light, he says, under a bushel, but on a candlestick. Now that's the sort of thing a Christian is. He's like a city set upon a hill, which cannot be hid. Ye are the light of the world. And then you noticed in that prologue uh, to John's Gospel, which we read at the beginning, how constantly John there puts the whole question of the coming of truth into the world in terms of light. He, he says, was the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, however you may translate that phrase. Uh, he says, in him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not, and so on. Constantly, you see, we are told to take the statement about John the Baptist. He was not that light, but he bore witness unto the light. Christ is the light of the world. So that this is, I say, obviously, one of the major ways in which the New Testament presents to us the whole question of the Christian truth and our belief in it and our belonging to it. And, of course, what is characteristic of the Gospels is equally characteristic of the epistles. Take that great statement which we read there in 2 Corinthians 4. If our Gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light, the light of the glorious Gospel of God, shine unto them. 
And then that mighty statement, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts. What for? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You will find it running as a constant theme in the epistles of this apostle Paul. But you've got it also in the writings of the apostle Peter. He says in his first epistle in the second chapter, in the ninth verse, ye, he says, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people. What for? That ye may show forth the praises, the excellencies of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There it is once more. And you get it, of course, in the epistles of John in the same way. It's one of the major themes in the first epistle of John. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And all that he deduces from that in exactly the same way as the apostle Paul does here. Very well then, I say, we have abundant evidence to show that this is a most important aspect of the truth. And it's not surprising that the apostle takes it up, therefore, to reinforce and to press home what he has already been saying. But now this morning, I want to consider with you the most extraordinary and interesting way in which the apostle presents his theme. Before he comes to draw his deduction, and I've tried to divide up this way in which he presents his theme into a number of simple propositions, which nevertheless take us to the very heart of the whole matter. The first is this, that the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is perfectly clear. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is indeed, we can say, an absolute one. Now, here is something again that is emphasized repeatedly in the New Testament. That there should be no difficulty in telling the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. All the terminology of the New Testament with regard to what a Christian is emphasizes this very thing. It talks about regeneration. Not merely a a little bit of an improvement on the surface, but regeneration, rebirth. Not uh, that you come to a man and sort of take his rags off and put on a better suit of clothing, not that you make him wash his face and cut his hair. No, no, he's got to be born again. There's no more radical term than that. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Well, there you go right back to the origin of everything. A creation is bringing something into being out of nothing, making something out of nothing. That's creation. That's not improvement, that's not adaptation. It is creation. And the terminology is that a man who becomes a Christian is a man who has been created anew. A fundamental term. Well, now then, I'm putting this as the form of a principle. That the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is perfectly plain and clear and patent. I rather like the way in which the Apostle puts it in this eighth verse that we're looking at this morning. Did you notice it? Ye were 
ye are. Ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye, or you are. Well, what can I add to that? That's just it, you see. You were, you are. You are not what you were, and when you were, you, are, you were not what you are. Now, these are absolute terms. And this is the way I say the New Testament puts this matter right through uh, from the very beginning to the very end. Once upon a time, you were there, but you're no longer there. You are. And the point I'm going to make, you see, is this, that the way we test ourselves is whether we know anything about this you were and you are. But let me give you the other way in which he puts it. He adds a word. He says, um, ye were sometimes, once upon a time, if you like, once. And the contrast to that is now. Look back, he says, there, once upon a time, once, that was your position. But now, well, we've already, as we've been working through this epistle, we've already had occasion more than once to show how the apostle glories in this but now. Do you remember it there back in that second chapter, uh, how he brought it out with such force and power? He reminds these people that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. But now, thank God, he says, you're no longer there. Now. And then later on in that same chapter, he says, now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Ye were, you are, sometimes now. Now that is the difference, I say, between not being a Christian and being a Christian. And then you see he adds to it all by contrasting darkness with light. Now here again you see the same ideas come, come, come the same idea comes out. It's one thing or the other. You can't mix light with darkness. You remember how in the second epistle to the Corinthians chapter six the apostle again works that out. He says there is no communion between light and darkness. Light and darkness are eternal opposites. And you can't mix them. It's either light or dark. One or the other. And what he's telling these people is that they must realize this. That they're no longer darkness, but they're light. Now, in the Lord. Now, let me make this perfectly clear. The apostle is not concentrating on the way in which we have passed from darkness to light. Or the exact time at which we did so. Many people are troubled by that. They say, you know, I can't put my finger on a particular moment or on a particular text or a particular occasion. And they're very troubled by that. Well, now, I say that that's not the point. The question that the apostle asks us is this. Not when or how exactly 
Did you pass from what you were to what you are? What he's really asking us is this. Can you say about yourself, I am? And can you add to it, I am no longer? The thing he's concerned about is this, that we are light and not darkness. It may happen suddenly, it may happen gradually. In some people's case, it's like switching on an electric switch. Suddenly, in the midst of darkness, there's a blaze of light. Others, it's more like that what happens in nature. Into the darkness of the night, there comes the first streak of dawn. Yes, but the moment you see the first streak of dawn, light has appeared. Don't be concerned about the time. The time element doesn't matter at all. The exact method of the process, if I may use the analogy of birth, I'd say the same thing. It doesn't matter whether it's taken a very long time or not. The question is, are you alive or are you not? If you're the merest babe in Christ, you're alive. That's what the apostle's concerned about. He says it is either light or darkness, and it is the one or the other. We are either Christians or we are not Christians. And there is no mean between them. You can't be half a Christian. You can't be on the way to being a Christian. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I've used the illustration before. Let me use it again. You may be standing in a bus queue. And the bus comes along. And slowly the people go in. And then to your utter dismay, suddenly the man holds up his hand. The very man in front of you was allowed in, but you were not. It's no comfort and consolation to know, is it, that you would have been the next if there would have been yet place for one? The point is you're not on the bus. You very nearly got on, I know, but you didn't. And it's no consolation to know that you very nearly did. We are either in the bus or else we are left standing in the queue. We are either Christians or non-Christians. We are either light or darkness. And what the Apostle is pressing, of course, is this, that this is something which is so clear that we should know it. And not only should we know it, but everybody else should know it. He can't apply his argument if we don't know it. If we are not quite certain whether we are light or darkness, well, how can we listen to the argument which comes to those who are light? No, the New Testament all along has a clearly marked distinction between the Christian, the non-Christian, the church, and the world. And the whole tragedy of the church today is that that distinction has become lost. I would remind you again that the Protestant reformers said that there are three marks to the Christian church. She is a place in which the true doctrine is preached, the sacraments are administered, and discipline is applied. But there has been confusion. Teachings have come in which have blurred these lines. Morality has come in and has become mixed up with religion. And the standards have been lost. It is thought that if a man lives a good life, he's a Christian, all right. But is that enough? Is he certain? Is anybody else quite certain? And the apostle, I say, is striking this tremendous point right home by saying... You've got to realize that indeed the difference is between light and darkness. You were, you are, sometimes now, darkness, light. So that the question we ask ourselves is this, are we light in the Lord?
Are we newborn babes? If no more. Very well, I leave it at that. We shall find the apostle goes on pressing it. So I come to my second principle, which is this one. The difference, I say, between the Christian and the non-Christian is perfectly clear, so we go on to look at the nature of the difference. And here the Apostle's terms are unusually interesting. You notice how he puts it. He says, ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Now, you notice that he doesn't say, at one time you were in the dark. He doesn't say that. He says, not simply that you were in the dark, but you were darkness. By which you see he means this. That not only were they in the dark, but the darkness was in them. And then on the other side, he doesn't just say, you are now enlightened, or you are now in the light. No, he says, you are light. This is a tremendous point. They were darkness itself. They are now light itself. What does he mean by this? Well, let me put it in this way. And it is one of the most urgent matters from the standpoint of evangelism. I, when I say evangelism, I not only mean preaching, I mean our conversation with people about these matters. We've got to understand the exact condition and the position of the man who is not a Christian. What is it? Well, here it is. He, I say, is not only in the dark, but the darkness is in him. He himself is darkness. He is a part of the darkness by which we mean sin. Now, the apostle is very fond of working out this idea. I read to you a portion of the first chapter of his epistle to the Romans last Sunday morning. And we came across this striking statement. Why is the world as it is? Well, this is it, says Paul. Their foolish heart was darkened. It wasn't simply that they were in the dark, but their foolish heart was darkened. Their very hearts became dark in and of themselves. You remember that in the 18th verse of the 4th chapter here in Ephesians, he said, having the understanding darkened. A kind of darkness has entered the mind and the heart, the outlook, the whole seat and center of personality. And this is clearly something which is of very radical importance, as I'm going to show you. Now, we've got a hymn who puts, puts, puts exactly the same point. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be, etc. Do you remember the verse that goes like this? Oh, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, yes, and whose mind is dim. My very mind is dim, he says. It isn't really that my native sphere is dark. It isn't really that I'm surrounded by darkness, but my mind has become dark. My mind is dim. How can such a man before the ineffable appear and on his naked spirit bear that uncreated being? Oh, you see, the trouble with men is this, that not simply is he in a dark world, but the light that was in him has gone out. God put a light into men. 
When God made man, he breathed into him his spirit. He became a living soul and he was in communion with God. There was a light in his soul. What has sin done? Sin has put out the light. It isn't simply I say that we're in a dark world. There's darkness within us. In our very being and constitution. Listen again to our Lord putting it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says the light of the body is the eye. If thine eye therefore be single, thy whole body also shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body also shall be full of darkness. Now that's what Paul means. He says you were darkness. Not simply in the dark, darkness was in you. Thy whole body also shall be full of darkness. Because this eye of the soul and the spirit has become opaque and darkened. No light goes into the body and the result is that the whole of the body, the mind and the heart, the whole personality is full of darkness. It's just another way in a sense of saying what the apostle said of the non-Christian at the beginning of chapter 2 in this epistle to the Ephesians, you were he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Not merely in the dark, but dead without any spiritual life, without a spark of life in you. That is exactly, says the apostle, where you were. And again, our Lord has put this so clearly in a vital statement which you find in the gospel according to St. John chapter 3, and verse 19, where he says this, And this is the condemnation. What is it? That light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The light has come. Why don't they believe it? Why don't they turn to it? They loved Darkness rather than light. In other words, there was darkness in their hearts. There was darkness in their minds. They don't simply walk in darkness and simply do things that belong to the realm of darkness. They love darkness. They enjoy it. They gloat in it. That's the thing that appeals to them. Darkness is within them. He doesn't merely say, ye were sometimes in the dark. No, no. Ye were sometimes darkness. And then, on the other hand, you see, he doesn't say about the Christian simply that he's been enlightened. He doesn't simply say that he's come into the light. That is perfectly true. But he says something much more glorious, much more wonderful. Now, are ye light in the law? It isn't simply that the Christian has got understanding. He has more than that the light has entered into him, has irradiated the whole of his being, has possessed him, has lighted him up. Oh, there it is again in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. What's he done? Hath shined into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our hearts have been made light. They've been revivified. The light has been put into them. Light is sown for the righteous, says the Old Testament psalmist. So that the Christian, you see, is not merely a man who has the eyes of his understanding enlightened. He has that, but he has more. His eye has been made single. And therefore the logic follows. If thine eye be single, thy whole body also shall be full of light. 
The Christian is a man who has been filled with light. Now then, why is this so important? Well, it's important for these reasons. It emphasizes again the radical difference between the non-Christian and the Christian. It shows us that the change that a man undergoes when he becomes a Christian is the profoundest change in the world, which affects the vitals of his being, which affects the seat of his personality, the heart, the understanding, the affections, everything. And it is of tremendous importance, I say, in the matter of evangelism. And in this way, there is a false school of evangelism that believes and teaches something like this. It says all you've got to do is to hold the truth before people. They say man has got it in him to understand and to believe and to accept the truth. So all we need to do is to hold the truth before him. Present it logically, clearly, bring out your arguments, put it as strongly as you can, add your eloquence and so on. But the great thing is to present the truth to him. He's got the capacity and the power to believe it and to take it. And that's all that evangelism really means and does, giving people the truth in this way. Well, of course, evangelism does include, and it is the most vital part of evangelism, that one should thus present the truth. But that alone is not enough. And this is the thing, surely, that we must begin to understand. Our Lord has dealt with that in that verse I've already quoted, John 3:19. This is the condemnation, that the light has come. Well, what's the matter then? Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It's their natures that were wrong. It isn't enough to hold the truth before men. They hate the truth. They prefer and love the darkness. So it isn't merely enough to teach people. I've known many people who believed this. I remember one quite well known who used to say that all was needed was to put posters of plaster London with texts of scripture. And tremendous things would happen. I suggest to you that of necessity nothing would happen. God sometimes uses that method, but merely to confront people with texts of Scripture, in and of itself cannot save a single soul. Neither can any preaching of any type or kind. Why not? Well, I say because the unbeliever is darkness. His difficulty is not merely that he needs to be shown light. No, no. In addition to showing him the light, you've got to lighten him. He needs to be born again. The Holy Spirit must do an operation in him. The Apostle has said it all, of course, in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 2, where he says, The natural man or the natural mind receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. You can put the truth before him, placard it, plaster it, quote your verses, bring your arguments. The natural mind receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he, for they are spiritually deserved. Not only must we present the light of the truth, but we must pray that the Holy Spirit may enlighten the minds and the hearts. It's a dual operation. Which, you see, makes me say this once more. That nothing short of a mighty revival and a visitation of the Spirit of God is going to deal with the present situation. Bibles are being sold as they've never been sold, I understand. Books on these matters are constantly being produced and are being read. Never more. Education, it's being taught here, there, and everywhere. Yet the position goes from bad to worse. Why? 
Well, as the apostle again puts it in writing to the Corinthians, even this truth, if it doesn't come to men and women in demonstration of the spirit and of power, will achieve nothing. So an evangelism, which imagines and thinks that it's sufficient simply to hold the truth before people, and of course the father of that teaching in a sense was that man who was truly a great man whose name was Finney. That was exactly what he taught. That he didn't believe in original sin. All you need to do was to hold the truth before people. And as they were, they could believe it and take it in. No, no, they can't. They're darkness. And because they're darkness and not merely in the dark, to hold the light of the truth before them is not enough. They need to be changed at the center of their being. They need to be made light. The operation of the Holy Spirit is essential. The princes of this world didn't recognize him when he came. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, how does anybody believe this? Oh, in this way, says Paul, God hath revealed them unto us. How? By the preaching or by the written word? No, by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. You must never separate the word and the Spirit. Man needs not only light from outside, he needs light within it's the operation of the Spirit in opening the Word and in opening the heart to receive it. Do you remember the story of Lydia? The first convert in Europe of the Apostle Paul. How did she become a convert? This is how it's put. Whose heart the Lord opened that she hearkened unto and received the things which were spoken of Paul. No, no, a true evangelism is one that is utterly dependent upon the power of the Spirit to put light into men. He needs to be made light. He not only needs to be enlightened. Very well, there's the second principle. Let me say just a word upon the third, which is this. What is it that produces this change, this transition? What is it that accounts for this difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? Well, fortunately, the apostle tells us. Ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. He never fails to do it. He couldn't fail to do it. It is all in the Lord. There is nothing without him. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the ending. He is the all and the in all. There is nothing without him. It is all in him. Oh, may I go back again to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It puts it so gloriously and beautifully. There we were all darkness. How have we become Christian? Well, this is it, says Paul. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. That's how I've become a Christian, he says. Nothing less than the action and the operation of God. The God who at the beginning, when the Holy Spirit brooded over the chaos, when the world was without form and void, God said, let there be light. There was the first move, and God alone could do it. God alone has done it, he says to us. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined into our hearts all oh, the depth of it. Not merely put us into an atmosphere of light. No, no. He has shined into our hearts. A kind of x-ray. The most powerful, imaginable. Has shined into our hearts. 
What for? To give or to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God himself. How has he done it? In the face of Jesus Christ. It's not surprising Paul put it like that, is it? You remember, you see, what had happened to him. Go with him down that road to Damascus that day, setting out from Jerusalem, breathing out threatenings and slaughter. A non-Christian. Not only in the dark, but darkness inside him. It was the darkness inside him that made him breathe out threatenings and slaughter. That made him ravish, feel ravished at the mere anticipation of killing and massacring these little innocent Christian people. That was darkness manifesting itself. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter. In the dark, darkness in his soul. And then he saw that light above the brightest shining of the sun. And not only a light, a face. Who art thou, Lord? Whose face is that? Whence comes this radiance, this light, this glory? Whose is that visage? Who art thou, Lord? You've lightened me. I've never seen anything like it. Who art thou? The answer was, I am Jesus. And thou persecutest. He'd already seen that he was a Lord, that he was a God. And now he comes to see that he is indeed the eternal Son of God. God, the eternal Son, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And in through and through him, and by looking into his face, he has seen God, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, you and I, shall not see the face like that here on earth. The apostle had to see the face to be an apostle and to be a witness of the resurrection. We shall not have that direct vision which he had and which was so glorious that it blinded him for the moment. No, no, we shan't have that, but I'll tell you this. No man can be a Christian without something of that light which is in the face of Jesus Christ coming into his heart and into his soul. But now are he light in the Lord. In other words, not only have I received light on God, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He has come to give us light, as I'll show you about God. Yes, but more. He shines into our hearts. He enters into them. And we are in him. Now are he light in the Lord. We don't merely believe in Christ, we are joined to Christ. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us, the hope of glory. There is this indissoluble link. He is the vine, we are the branches. We are in him, participators, partakers of his very life and light and glory. He makes us right. It is entirely and altogether and exclusively in Jesus Christ. You see, a Christian is not merely a man who believes the teaching, who not merely accepts the Christian ethic or the Christian morality, and who now proceeds to apply it to his life. There are many good and moral people who are doing that, but you see, they're not Christians. Why? Well, they're not made light. They're simply borrowing a little of his light, as Gandhi did and others. No, no, that doesn't make a man a Christian. What makes a man a Christian is not that he's seen a certain amount of light and takes hold of it and applies it, but that he has been made light. That he is in the Lord, in Christ, and Christ in him. That he is thus 
deriving his life and his energy and his power and his everything from the living head. We are the body of Christ and members in particular. And he fills us with life and light and power and so we are enabled to practice it. We do that. We don't do just do nothing and look to him. No, no. He enables us to act. Walk, therefore. As children of light. Thank God the Apostle put it like this. In order that we may realize this morning that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is an absolute one. In order that we may realize that we are not merely looking on at the light. Thank God we are. But there is light within us. We are no longer darkness. I cannot honestly say any longer in this pulpit, Oh, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim? Thank God it isn't dim. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has entered. I see. My mind, my heart, have been filled with light. God knows there is infinitely more to learn, but I am no longer darkness. I am light. In the Lord. As he is light. We are light. As he is the light of the world. We are the light of the world. We are lamps. We are luminaries. The light is in us. We not merely reflect it. It is within us. Now are ye light. In the Lord. Amen.